Today, I'm really excited to have Tom Alterman on the podcast. Tom is the industry leading product manager, and he is currently the head of product for revenue and monetization at Asana. Prior to Asana, he started off his career as an engineer before moving into UX design at startups in London. From there, he joined PlanGrid, which was then later acquired by Autodesk. And after a brief stint at Autodesk, he then decided to join Site, which was a startup that was focused on bringing AI and computer vision technologies into the construction industry. After Site, Tom ended up joining Asana. He also had a brief stint with Olympus DAO, which covers OM, which is Web3's decentralized reserve currency. Having people like Tom on the podcast fascinates me because you get to really dive into what it takes to make great products and get to really get some insight into areas that aren't necessarily thought about when creating products, such as values and culture being so essential in that. I loved having Tom on the podcast and getting insight into his product building philosophy, how he goes about pursuing new opportunities, and also being able to get a little bit more insight into what I believe is one of the most mission-driven cultures in the world at Asana. So with that said, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Hey Tom, and welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you so much. I feel very honored to be here. Yeah, yeah really excited to have you on. So let's get into it. You know, what brought, brought you towards product management? Basically got into startups, doing jack-of-all-trade things. I started off as an engineer and then realized I wasn't that great of an engineer, but what I really loved was the creative part of it. And then I discovered the world of UX design and I'm like, oh yeah, that that's what I want to be doing. So was like a hybrid um, engineer designer and you know just like getting things done moving things figuring out how to find product market fit just realized i was kind of doing all the things that a product manager does without realizing what product management even was and then once i discovered that i was like oh yeah that that's kind of what i'm doing um and that's kind of been the story of my career basically uh being interested in something, driving towards it, and then discovering like, oh, there is a job that actually does that, and maybe uh, leaning into that a bit more. For sure, yeah. I think you know, I think that's sort of a very traditional way people have gone into product management, and I think it happens to me all the time. Where somebody's asked me, you know, hey, like, you know, what what I need to do to get product management experience, and I, I tell them that a lot of the times in your in your typical jobs, like as a software engineer, as a UX designer, you might be doing a lot of product management functions in that already. Is just about you know having that as a formalized position and, and focusing on that area versus having that as more of a side uh, you know side part of your job. So uh, it makes sense that you know you naturally gravitated towards that as as a UX designer. And it you know it's different. I mean, it was different back then. Um, I'm old enough to be b- before the time we even called them UX designers. I was initially an inf- information architect, uh, <laughs> and product managers weren't really a thing. Um, now it's more of a thing. Now there's actually more of a uh, way of getting into it. You know, APM programs. There are like crazy smart kids coming out of college that have already done this uh, for like months and months already. Uh, so there is more of a craft. But I think there's a lot to be said about coming into product management from other experience in the industry, uh, bringing some subject matter expertise that's not just being a PM. I think just gives you so much extra value uh, and helps you do your work better. For sure. For sure. So, you know, talk, diving into some of your experience there, you know, you've been at a variety of corporations and startups, like you mentioned. So I was just wondering, you know, what are some of the biggest differences you see between the two? I think the fundamental one is 
the fundamental difference I see is in startups, you're in basically like execute or die mode. So like what matters above all else is just getting that execution as quickly as possible. Now, obviously, you want to make it right. You don't want to mess anything up, but you're willing to take a lot more risk. You're, you're willing to uh, do things a bit rougher, um, you know, maybe even like ruffle feathers more internally to just like get that thing done. Because ultimately, like that's the thing that's going to help you survive another month, another year. Right. Um, which is very exciting and very energetic and, and where a lot of create, creative energy comes from. It's also very stressful. Um, and often you're working without a lot of support structures. Like you may not have data scientists, you may not have user researchers, you may not have great copywriters or, you know, like all these, all these things, you're kind of having to figure that out yourself. Mm -hmm. um, also, startups are kind of weird. They, um, as you grow, people outgrow their roles. You might not actually have good people in the jobs around you to get these things done. Um, mm -hmm. when you flip that over to large companies, it's kind of the opposite. You have incredible support, you know, some experts in their field at every single thing, incredible background, incredible research, incredible data, data. Um, and you have a lot more stakeholders who are interested and have opinions and that you need to get sign off on to like make the thing happen. So right. like execution speed is still important. It's something you talk about, but you far more lean into um, getting it right, getting it approved, make, getting it through the system. I kind of joke that it's like, sometimes it's like 5% work, 95% like stakeholder alignment. Right. Uh, and that's like, that kind of changes depending on the, on the organization. Um, especially because you have more teams involved. You know, if there's one engineering team in a startup, you don't even need to do much alignment. You're just shipping stuff. Yeah. If there's like multiple teams in a startup, that's when things start getting, you start figuring out, oh, we need to avoid stepping on each other's toes and make aware. And then that just problem explodes exponentially as you get to a larger and larger company. Right. Yeah, I think for sure. Like, I think so. I mean, I, I just started my own startup experience. Uh, you know, I, my previous experience was a lot of in big companies, but I decided to work at a startup uh, starting with, you know, after graduation. So that's definitely been co consistent with some of the experience that I have where, you know, at a bigger company, when you have decisions, it goes through a lot of review cycles, you have a lot more time to think about it. And you want to make sure that it's like, really proper and right and exactly what you want to bring to your customer. Which, I mean, it's very important at a startup too, but you don't have that luxury to think about, hey, you know, like I can, I want to need to go through these review cycles and, you know, I need to make sure that these decisions are very, very thought out because you just don't have that time or that luxury um, for, for the good and the better because it makes, it empowers you to make decisions. Uh, but at the same time, you're a lot more prone to making silly mistakes that, uh, that can really bite you later on. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, something that I've noticed, especially in large companies, especially large, great companies where you're full of A plus people who love doing A plus work on stuff. And sometimes, you know, B minus is enough for the thing that you're trying to do. And knowing how, how to figure out the level of effort and the level of input is, is really challenging, especially when, you know, a lot of your promotion, a lot of the, um, how people regard you in a company is based on your deliverables. Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily optimizing for speed. You're optimizing for making sure that um, 
people understand that you've done your homework and that you know what you're doing, uh, which can often drag things out just naturally that way as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Well, going back to some of your experience, so, you know, I, I sort of alluded to this at the beginning, you've, you've been at a variety of corporations and startups. So I was just wondering, like, when it comes to choosing what you want to pursue next, how do you, how do you make those decisions? How do you, you know, end up deciding that, hey, this is the next opportunity I want to take on? What I have had the fortune to try and optimize for learning. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I end up in a place where I'm doing something, I'm really loving it and or not, and I'm trying to like move on to something else. And, and then I figure out like, oh, this is interesting. Let's dig into this more. And then the more and more I do that, the more I learn. And then at some point that learning stops and I realize like, oh, I need to go somewhere else to, to learn how to do this and find the company where I think I'm going to be able to do that. Right. Um, sometimes it's like, okay, I need to get out of this big company and then go and learn how to you know, work without a safety net and uh, no training wheels and see like how, how I could do that. Um, or it's like, okay, I need to go and like be better at these particular skills. And so I need to go find a place where I'm the dumbest person in the room and I can go learn all of these things from these really smart people. Right. Now that makes sense. I think, yeah, it's, it's really challenging for me because you have to, you have to find that balance of when have you gotten, you know, what you needed to out of the position or what you wanted to get out of the position. And when is it time, the right time to move on to something that can optimize for your learning or, you know, keep on going with this and, and see, uh, you know, how, how far it goes. So uh, that's something I really struggle with. And I, I, like, I mean, I just started off my career. So definitely getting that insight from you is, is, is super valuable to me to try understanding, you know, how to, how, how to go about that. Yeah. And, and the thing to call out is like, that's a very, luxurious position to be in and you're not always in that position like sometimes you change jobs because it's not working out sometimes you change jobs because you need more money for life stuff or right and sometimes you don't change jobs even though you're not learning because of some of those circumstances um you know visas is like a big one that you know like uh i'm sure a lot of your listeners of uh of various countries will uh, will understand. Um, and that's okay. And that's really, you know, that's all understandable. And, um, but when it comes to learning and, and I kind of, tr- it's kind of like relationships where you kind of realize probably like three months too late, if maybe six months too late that you, uh, you're not in the right place and you need to get out of it. And right. sometimes that's really hard. And once you've done it, you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe that I, I stayed there for so long. Right, right, makes sense. Well, talking about learning, let's you know, let's d- dig into some of your experience here with products. So, you know, first starting with PlanGrid. PlanGrid utilizes new technology with mobile electronics to solve legacy problems in the lagging construction industry. And you know, by around the time you joined, it started gaining a lot of traction. And I think they were closing their Series B around the time you joined, or just closed it. Um, so, I'm just wondering, you know, like when you achieve product market fit and start growing your product. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of growing pains in that transitionary period where you, you know, you go from your MVP or your f- first or second iteration to to now scaling out your product and, and bringing customers on. So I was just wondering, like, when it came to PlanGrid and when you joined, where did you see the biggest change required in, in, in changing the product mindset at the company uh, in order to start optimizing for that? 
yeah, I think the scaling of the organization is was the biggest challenge. So, you know, at the time, even like just before I joined, it was, you know, already like 80, 90 people when I was interviewing and they were only just getting product managers. They were only just getting a design team. It was just like there were people who wrote code and then there were people who didn't write code and did all the other things. <laughs> and it was kind of a great sign of product market fit. And something I really leaned on was like, oh, wow, they just haven't had the time to get their act together because they're too busy just trying to like add features, fix things and sell, figure out how to sell the product. Um, so, but then, you know, you get to a certain size and certain scale and you need to have all this structure, a bit more structure, a bit more organization and figuring out how do you do that and how do you add it at the right time? Just enough process, just enough structure, just enough management, um, making sure that you have the right people for that as well. You know, there are a mm -hmm. lot of people who thrived in that early fine product market fit phase who didn't thrive in that scale-up phase. And that was big growing pains, especially with you know, putting people in leadership positions who weren't ready for those positions and, right. and how that like ripples across the company. Um, right. And I think there's a lot of lessons learned there about what to do, what not to do, um, that are also just kind of part and parcel of that phase of a startup. Right. And I, I, that's actually this is going to be my follow-up. Like, I think when you're at that point, there's a lot of apprehension to change at the company too, because things have been going as it as it has. Uh, and I feel like a lot of people don't realize that you have to change the processes and the way the company operates in order to scale. So, like when it came to overcoming that apprehension that some some people most likely had at the company, what were some of the strategies that you employed there? Um, it's a good question. Partly, they just didn't have a choice. Like it wasn't that there was like intentional change. It was just like scaling we need like the problems were getting bigger the things that we need to tackle were bigger they were just like staring us in the face or banging down the door um so it kind of the change management kind of happened in retrospect in rather than uh because you realize like oh wow we've got to do this thing great we need to go right. go there um you know i think it's hard especially at that stage because change is happening at every especially if you're growing very fast you know, you're a different company every couple of months. I remember actually a, a friend of mine at PlanGrid when we were talking about how crazy it was that we were flip-flopping around and switching structures and organizations. And he was like, oh, dude, this is nothing. I was at Facebook in 2009. Right. And he said every six months, everything changed. Like literally like his desk, where it was in the office, who he reported to, what he was doing, what the team structures were. And that wasn't like a bad sign. That was just a sign of how fast they were growing is that they just had to completely react and become a new company every six months to make that right. happen. And right. uh, PlanGrid wasn't quite at that crazy scale, but it's kind of like that. And it's, it's honestly like a sign of a healthy startup that is growing really well. Um, mm -hmm. If things are changing slowly, might be that like, you know, also, probably it means that your growth rate is not as uh, as high as you want it to be. Right, right. That makes sense. Okay, no, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, and yeah, getting getting into the experience a little bit more. You know, you later went on at PlanGrid to to create the first expansion uh, to the product suite at, uh, suite at PlanGrid. And I think you know everybody has their own theories about when it's time for a startup to introduce their second product. 
Uh, some people, you know, think it should, it should be a little bit more early on. Some people think it should be a lot later on, you know, after a lot more growth and a lot more users. So, you know, from, from your perspective, uh, first off, like how, wh- when do you think it's the right time to introduce a second product? Um, and then, yeah, let's, let's dig into that a little bit more. I mean, you know, the honest answer there is like, it's, it depends so much about what your product is what the space you're in, what your go-to-market strategy is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like some rules of thumb that some people have. Like if you, uh, I can't recall exactly who it is, but there's a, a quite influential um, sales and go-to-market strategist for startups who basically says like, don't try and build a second product until you've got at least 10 million, maybe even 20 million ARR. Just right. because like until that your first one is doing well and you've scaled up your operation and you know how to sell that, especially in B2B sales world, um, given just like it's so hard to get that operation going, to get sales, to get marketing, to get customer success, to know how to pack price, package, close those deals, that you don't want any distraction from that. Like you can build like add-ons, like little bits and bobs and like extra levers, but until you until your core product is great and it's selling and you've got that product market fit you don't want to be building that second one if you're building that second one before that it's probably a sign that you don't have faith in your core product and that's a bigger problem than um managing those two Mm -hmm. right that makes sense and then and then in terms of like having cohesion between the products you know like when uh, at bigger companies you know when when you know, when you want to make a new product, a lot of people who, who have been with the company for a long time and senior leadership take start taking it on. Uh, and, and you're able to keep the core identity of the company with that second product. But especially at an early stage startup, you know, when you're still trying to establish your identity as a company and, and it's so early stage, making that second product, you know, it, 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 it sounds very tough. So I was just wondering, you know, when it comes to keeping that cohesion between what got you to that point where you are today, uh, and that second introduction, how, how do you go about doing that? Um, I think it really depends on what category you're in and how well-defined your category is. Mm-hmm. So especially if you're building a new product, like we were in a new space of construction, um, construction productivity tools. Mm-hmm. And there was this like existing category of project management software that we were trying to be very differentiated from and saying like, you, um, you don't, like you have a legacy project management software, it's not great. So you're gonna have this productivity tool on top of that, that we're gonna play really nice with, where you're really going to get um, the exponential gains from. And in a world where that was true and we were succeeding at that, it was pretty clear like, okay, you don't need a, another product. What started happening was one of our biggest competitors, Procore, which was a the best of the project management systems, started like heavily investing in copying us because they could see the market we were creating, right. and started selling this idea of a, a you know a one all in one system between your project management and your field. And as much as we tried to fight that, it was clear that that category was now being formed in our customers' minds. This was melding into one thing. Right. And we honestly started building this product way too late. We were probably, um, you know, 
it's easy to look at this in uh, in retrospect, but we should have started that way earlier. We should have got a- ahead of that. And um, uh, but once we did, it was clear. And you build it in the way that you uh, you th- that shows your identity as a company. So we want okay. to know, okay, what are our principles? How what is it that we value? What is our USP? Then think about, okay, how can we solve the problems of this? of this new product category using that approach. And that's the work that we put in and that's where we came up with our unique take on those things. So that's right. kind of how how you make that cohesive is just making sure that you build it according to the same values and the same principles. Right. And I guess, yeah, I guess having those values and principles is so key at any startup to be successful or any company, whether it's big or small, but uh, especially you know, when you're starting off. So I, that makes a lot of sense, especially making sure that those values reflect that new reflect in your new product. And that comes from it being very grounded from, from the get go. Um, cool. So let's, let's, let's move on a little bit. So, you know, from plan grid, you ended up going uh, to structure site. So, you know, talking a little bit about structure site, structure site utilized AI and computer vision in the construction industry. And, and, you know, for people from a tech background, it, it seems sort of obvious that, hey, you know, you can probably incorporate these technologies in construction and, uh, and, and you know, there could be a lot of benefits there. But, you know, to those who are not familiar with tech, I, I think it can be a little bit challenging for them to see that value that these technologies could add and, and especially to change their processes uh, that these technologies might have them do. So when it comes to that, you know, what were some of your strategies in getting buy-in from prospective customers who might not necessarily see uh, the value that you're going to add immediately or, or, or might not necessarily want that immediately? Yeah, I think the key thing is, is that like technology is a, the sizzle. Like we use the, the fact that there was AI and computer vision and we had some cool graphics for it. But that's not what you fundamentally sell. What you sell is the the value you're creating for the customer. And you know, in construction, I love construction because people are just very direct, very honest. There's zero room for fluffiness or trying out things like they, they just don't have huge right. margins on their work. So they just need stuff that is a hundred percent reliable. Right. So what you sell to them is not the tool. What you sell to them is the hours they're going to save the money that they're going to get back in their budgets because like the mistakes they're going to avoid by using these tools. So you, you know, what we lean into were like, what are the things that are going wrong now? Where are their biggest problems and showing how, if they just use this tool, then, you know, automatically those problems go away. And, but you have, and you have to prove that with clear ROI, you have to let them touch and feel it themselves. Right, um, and you have to design the experience to make it as reliable as the the hammer, the crane, you know, all the other things on this on this uh, job site. Because like the doing the A/B tests, doing that like you know messy first MVP, like the minute something isn't doesn't deliver the thing that they want every time, they will just abandon it because they don't they don't have time to uh, mess about with anything, and they'll just go back to the old way they were doing things. Right. Yeah, I think that's that's so specific to construction too. That that reliability um, is is vital. And and if you, it's like it's really like if if you mess up once with them, it's very hard to regain that trust. Um, so like, but 
so like when when it came to building products at Structure Insight, how how did you keep that at the center? Because at a startup, that can be very tough to do. Yeah, it's it's deep deep empathy with the customers. So making sure we had construction people in our company, that DNA really came from that. Make sure we spent a huge amount of time with our customers, understanding their pain points, watching their processes. And it's something I've taken to other products as well, is that fundamentally, you know, it's most extreme in construction, but it's true of everyone. In in your job, you have ways of getting things done. And changing those ways, even if they're really inefficient, is super hard because it's going to take time to change it to learn the new thing. So the only way you can really do that virally and effectively with a new product is not have people change their behavior, but just see that now because they do use your product instead of something else, what took them 20 steps and 20 hours now takes, you know, 10 minutes. And And they didn't have to become a better human being. They didn't need to like go on a training uh, seminar. They didn't need to like, you know, inhibit, create a new practice. Um, I like calling it superpowers, um, you know, rather than supercomputers. You want to just like immediately feel more powerful because you have this tool. And you might need to train that superpower, you know, by you get even better at it, but it needs to be that immediately valuable rather than a supercomputer that like, okay, if you spend your time and effort and in six months time, you might figure out how to make it work and do the thing that right. you needed to. Right. Yeah. I think, I think that magic moment, that's, that's how I think about it. Like that magic moment where the customer realizes the value that you're delivering is so core in any, in, in the work a product manager does, because that's what you want to deliver to the customer. Um, yeah. And, and, and we see it like time and time again, where not necessarily the most technologically advanced company wins. It's the companies who can deliver that value and, and have those magic moments for the customer. Those are the people who really come through. So it makes a lot of sense that, you know, it's, in any industry, but especially in this in this case, having the empathy for the construction workers and, and, and people on the site uh, and making sure that their use cases are at the forefront rather than just throwing technologies for the sake of throwing technologies is definitely something that's very, very uh, important. Absolutely. Yeah, perfect. Well, so then you went from construction site to Asana, which is, you know, a, a pretty, uh, you know, a new industry. So like what, what, what was sort of the, what was sort of the motivation behind that switching jobs there? Yeah, it was kind of realizing, as I mentioned before, that I had like a lot more I wanted to learn about product management, about great products, great culture, and mm-hmm. trying to find, okay, what is the the smartest, best culturally driven company I could find yeah. and go and spend time learning fr- from them? You know, like, and it needs to be a great product, something that I truly believed in. It needed to be a super smart team that had the right values and culture and Asana ticked, ticked all those boxes. Oh yeah, like I mean, I think uh, out of uh, out of a lot of the cultures I've seen in Silicon Valley, Asana is one of the most mission-driven cultures I've I've ever seen. Uh, not even Silicon Valley in the world. Like I, I I think it's very hard to find a company that has is more mission-driven. And so you know, when it comes to that, what do you think that Asana does so well that ensures that its vision uh, is reflected throughout the product and its culture really permeates through all people and and its products? I think the the somewhat simple answer to that is it really like leadership, you know, from Dustin down 
live and breathe the principles and values and culture in every decision and everything that they do. Right. And, uh, you know, Dustin's an incredible first principles thinker. Uh, this is Dustin Moskowitz, the, the CEO yeah. of, um, uh, of Asana. Mm -hmm. And so he really goes back to first principles about any decision, whether it's a product decision, whether it's a people decision, whether it's a strategic or a, you know, like catering decision. Um, he will lean back on like his values, the values and the principles he's defined for the company and derive it back from there. And you see it at all hands when he answers questions in product strategy meetings as well. And then that permeates through the company. When you see the leadership doing that, when they hire with that in mind, when they reinforce those, um, then that's what creates that really mission and culture driven uh, perspective. And I've, right. anyway, I've been in other companies that have tried to do that, but there's often like a shadow. Uh, what happens is you have the public principles and then you have like the shadow values. And <laughs> um, often those shadow values are the things that will win out, you know, if there's a conflict there. And Asana doesn't have that. They have uh, the values set out in stone and right. everything comes back to that. And, you know, the, the decisions get made and agreed and aligned on based on do they adhere to those values most. Right. And it's pretty obvious that like, you know, that you guys do follow those values because like I mentioned, you, you can have, you can say whatever you want to say to the public world. Uh, but if you have those shadow values, your products will reflect that your products will reflect what those actual motivations are. Uh, but in the same way, if you put out those public values, you can easily tell from the products itself that you're following them. And I think that's something that Asana has very unique to them that, you know, through and through they've kept those values uh, in their products and, and you can really see that. Well, that's, uh, it means a lot that you say that um, because it shows that what we're doing is, uh, is working. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, and then, yeah, getting into some of your specialities. So, you know, you're, you're in the revenue and monetization, you're director of product there uh, for that. And, and I think there's a lot of ways of going about creating customer uh, product tiers for customers. And, you know, one of the areas I really admire about Asana is that you have three simple tiers with the basic premium and business uh, tiers. And I, I was just wondering, you know, when it comes to that, it's, on, on paper, a lot of people think it's very easy to tier out systems like that. But as you keep adding more features, it can be really hard to maintain those different tiers. So I was, like, I was just wondering, when it comes to that, how do you, how do you maintain such simple t tiers while still building onto the, onto the product with new features? Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is a lot of hard work. And, you know, those tiers exist through a lot of uh, research and planning and experimentation to make sure that the incentives of uh, the customer aligned with the incentives of our monetization strategy. Uh, mm -hmm. We didn't ever want to do anything that inhibited um, how customers interact and get value from the product uh, because of different monetization levers. And so, you know, as a, as a company, we had to spend a lot of time thinking about how we wanted to mon monetize, how we deliver the most value to customers and um, provide them the right level of value at the right time as mm -hmm. the complexity of their work increases, as the scale of what they do increases. Um, and that's always a really tricky thing, especially with new features and you, you, you want to know okay, if I put it at a higher tier, fewer people are going to see this. 
But ultimately, it comes down to like the level of complexity of the work. We have kind of clear views of where um, each tier um, sits, what kind of people get what value from it. And that's really important to us that it's really clear to customers what our pricing is and what is the right package for them. Mm-hmm. And so that allows us to understand much better, okay, if it's this type of customer, they're definitely in the more power tools perspective. They need um, the, the things for the very high complexity work. So we'll put that in the um, upper tiers. Whereas, oh, this is a thing that we, uh, is a fundamental thing to just like how you organize and, and, and get work done. So that needs to be uh, something more accessible to everyone. Right. And, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of complexity there and it's something that, you know, we put a lot of time and effort and, and conscientious thought into to, to get right. Right. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, Asana has so many different features too. So it can be very easy to break it down into 10, 15 tiers if you really wanted to get into it. But, you know, for the customer, of course, that's not the best experience. So I think it's really admirable how you guys have, kept that simplicity for the customer so they don't have to go through all, all of all of that uh you know complexity uh but at the same time you keep building on the platform and um and you know you you have them at the center there so you know talking a little bit about along those lines you know you, the free tier or sorry the basic tier is actually free uh so for anybody who's listening you can you can try asana using the basic tier uh if you want to you know get a first uh, impression of the platform if you haven't seen it already uh, but you know, one of the one of the interesting things with having a free tier for any product uh, is is having you know value in that free and that free offering, yet still incentivizing people to upgrade to a, a paid tier, you know, to generate revenue and and then, support the company. So, I was just wondering when when it comes to that, what is what are some of your thinking? Like, what is your thinking around that? Where uh, around you know offering a free tier that's devi- uh, that provides value, but at the same time incentivizing customers to upgrade. It's something you put a lot of thought into, and the you know the free tier is really important to us. Uh, really aligns with our mission. You know, ultimately, like what we're trying to do here is help humanity thrive by enabling the world's teams to work together effortlessly. Mm-hmm. And as part of that, we want to make sure that there's very few barriers to getting on that journey. And it's not just a free tier. We have um, a whole um, different go-to-market strategy for nonprofits, making sure that they can use it. Right. Um, at a much, much cheaper price. There's, there's stuff that goes into just making sure that, like, are we doing the most amount of good in the world whilst being a successful business? Um, and the free tier is also a successful business. It's something that allows people to start using Asana to gain value from it. You can actually gain a huge amount of value um, from, from the, the, the free tier. And the idea is that once you're doing more complex work once you're scaling this across your team your organization you're going to need additional features and functionality to to make that work more effortless more in line get that clarity across your organization about uh, the work you're doing the goals that you have and so as the complexity of your work increases and what you're trying to do that's when we can offer you that more functionality and um that more value from paying from asana Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think, especially for somebody like me, who, who, who starts a lot of stuff from the ground up, it's just great to have that software, that high level software available to me. Uh, because I think a lot of people in the past, I felt like they've been priced out or just haven't been able to, you know, get software that lets them really help them. 
but it comes back to that value-driven culture, right? So providing that value to customers who might not be able to afford it currently, but later on will will become you know loyal Asana customers is is a big deal. Uh, so it makes a lot of sense. And there's um there's a value which. I kind of thought it was a little bit weird to start with, uh, but it's actually been very powerful and very useful for understanding a lot of what we do and how we do it right, um, which is reject false trade-offs, um, which I really like, because often everything feels like a trade-off of like, okay, do we do, you're in a kind of sucker's choice of do we do something that is uh, right for the customer or do we do something that writes for the business? Or, you know, like right. this comes up in, ver- in work in various different ways. And this value is really important because emphasizing like truth is complex and it very rarely does that oversimplifying the problem help. You know, what if both are true is the approach that we always take and provide that mindfulness for a team to collectively learn and improve what we do. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, whenever we get to this, that, that point, and it's especially important in monetization, is making sure we reject any false trade-offs um, right. there. Which, which, you know what, that's that's full credit to Asana because <laughs> a lot of companies aren't willing to do that or they they just don't do it. And and eventually, you know, it'll start, it'll come back to bite them. But because because at the end of the day, you know, you, you want to make sure that you're providing value to consumers, you're providing value to customers. And sometimes that means not being greedy. Uh, and, and and being a company that really has them their best interest at the forefront. Uh, so especially like, you know, with Asana, I, I definitely see that where Asana has the best interest of their users at the forefront rather than trying to just optimize for money, for example. Um, perfect. Well, you know, we talked a lot about values and, and culture and, and being really value and culture driven. And I think one of the things that can be really difficult with that is finding people who align. Uh, with that culture and with that values um, and especially with something like asana you know you want to make sure that who, you know when you have a new hire coming in uh they're they're still propagating those values and the culture that that you want to see so i was just wondering when you look to hire a new product manager what are what are some of the ways uh what are some of the things that you look for uh that that showcase that to you yeah well i think there's like two different filters i kind of look at like i have my core um I have my core principles of how I look for talent. And then you mm-hmm. also apply it through the lens of like, are they going to be a fit at, at Asana? So mm-hmm. I can kind of share you know, what I look for. Um, it's quite simple um, in the sense of it's, it's basically three things. The first is like intelligence. Is this someone who is smart, who's done hard things, who knows how to solve hard problems? Because as product managers, that's basically what we do. And so like, is there evidence of that in their previous work, in what they've done um, in their life that shows that that intelligence? The second, and I realize this is a British term, uh, it's called graft. It just okay. basically is like, can they do hard work? Are they okay. willing to trudge through often the like mundane um, bits of what product management is? Because it's not like under the surface, there's a lot of slogging through data, through meetings, through uh, interviews, through uh, all these things to get this stuff done. Right. And if someone's not interested in that or hasn't shown that in the past, they are not going to be a successful product manager. So right. I always look for that. 
And the third and the really critical for me is empathy. Like, are they empathetic, not just to customers, but to their colleagues, to um, empathy, empathy to an organization, to its culture, um, and how they displayed that in the past, how they're displaying it as they show up in the interview process, and right. how do I think they'll display it when they go forwards? And, uh, you know, there's like, all the interview process but fundamentally those are the attributes if i if i feel like someone is strong at those three things um i feel like they you know i can coach on on anything else right yeah and i I think that's you know that's something uh those those are really two three really valuable traits that a lot of people might you know might think is common but it's it's very hard to find people who do all three uh you know I, i know people who are super intelligent but because of that intelligence, they don't necessarily put in the hard work. And I know people who are super hardworking, but and and but you know, just unfortunately <laughs> they can't comprehend things as much. And then I know people who are both, but they don't have that empathy. And especially as a product manager, I think that's something that really is uniquely to product management, because you are a champion for the user. You are there to provide value. And if you don't understand your user or their use case, you're going to be unable to do that no matter how technically advanced your product is, no matter how great the design of your product is. If it doesn't deliver value to the users and you don't understand their use case, it's, it's worthless. And I think uh, that's something that's really, really important and makes a lot of sense when you're looking for interviews. Yeah. And it's not just empathy with the customer. I want to stress. It's also empathy for other people and your colleagues, because mm-hmm. fundamentally as product managers, we, you know, we are overhead. We're not doing the, we're not writing the code, we're not doing the design work, we're not doing uh, a lot of the things. We rely on um, all the other people to, to actually make these things happen. Right. And so actually having empathy for those people, understanding their motivations, making sure that we can set up them to succeed um, because we're not their manager. We don't have authority and how you lead without that authority is really about that empathy. Right, yeah, I think, you know, that digging to a point a little bit, I think for me, you know, whenever people ask you, what what do you think a product manager does? It, very simply, uh, my answer to that is my job is to A, be a champion for the user, but also put people in the right position to succeed, whether that be engineers, design, the executive team, whoever. I need to make sure that I'm doing whatever I can to make sure that they can do their best work and that we can drive this company forward. And that is something that's so unique to product management. Uh, <laughs> that you know, it it it. A lot of people who are not a product management can't necessarily won't necessarily understand that point. I feel like um, so hundred percent. I I I'm with you there. Um, cool. Well, you know, we've talked about Asana for a while, so you know, shifting into something a little bit different. Uh, you know, you were briefly the head of design at Olympus Dow, and to be honest with you, I you know, I had very I I didn't know that much about Olympus Dow going in, but. You know, the more and more research I did into it, it's 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 so interesting. Um, and I, I had some context on DAOs before. You know, I've been thinking about different ways that DAOs can apply. So first, before we get into specifically what Olympus DAO does, you know, I think DAOs are one of the most interesting concepts in Web3 and DeFi. Uh, so I was just wondering what made you interested in DAOs and, and in particular, what made you interested in Olympus DAO? Um, yeah, the honest answer was, you know, crypto was this thing that was exploding and I, I realized I didn't understand it. And yeah. like any technology, and I've, I'm really fascinated with the history of technology, 
you know, it's a kind of a joke or a, a, a fad that explodes and there's a hype bubble, but, but underlying that can often be something really important and valuable. And so mm-hmm. I felt, okay, if I don't understand this thing, how am I going to go and learn it? And I was trying to just like read papers and read all about it and just like not, not getting it anywhere. <laughs> like I learned by doing. So that, like, that's where I am going. right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I decided like, okay, I'm not going to just sit there and read all this stuff because it's not helping. Um, yeah. I'm going to go and try and uh, build something. So I was started by trying to write some smart contracts and realized like, oh, wait a minute, this is, I'm entering this world of like, uh, like I'm not going to get anywhere here. So I thought, okay, why don't I go and observe like where this stuff was happening and learning about DAOs and learning about how this work was happening. I just, you know, again, I'm a, an old man by some comparisons of like, I actually downloaded Discord for the first time to get into the world of crypto and started just joining all these DAOs because I could see that they were all available and just seeing what was going on. And, you know, Olympus wasn't the first place I joined, but um, as any any time I heard of a cool project that sounded interesting, I joined the DAO. I just see what's going on in the in the chat, um, see if they were looking for any help, uh, if I understood what it was, what the product was. Yeah. Um, and with Olympus, I kind of just showed up at the right time in the right right place, where I was just like, hey, I you know I I didn't want to be like, there's nothing more useless than a B two B SaaS product manager in the world of crypto. So I was thinking, okay, what hard skills do I have to be useful here, right. uh, which was design. And so I showed up saying like, hey, I can do design work. And they were like, oh, thank you so much. Our previous designs have just gone. Uh, can you do this, this, this? You know, it's getting into Figma, getting that work. And I think kind of they basically realized that like, because I knew how to do project management and I knew how to like create a backlog and prioritize work, um, they were like, oh, wow, can you just like run the design team and get more people? And uh, so you kind of like kind of fell into that accidentally, where at that point I was like the head of design and I was right. in the leadership meetings of, of Olympus and still like understood about 70% of what the product was. Um, but, you know, I knew how to do this and you had to scale a team and you had to operate in this. And But it was all in a really new format. Like the, the DAOs were... Um, really fascinating in terms of just like a new way of working where a new way of like hiring people, a new way of rewarding people. And some of it was crazy and insane. And, you know, they were trying to do things like, oh, we'll just write smart contracts um, to reward people. So every time you do some design, um, you get, you know, the token unlocks. Um, Hey, can you like, give us the rules of what good design is. And so we can like write it into the smart contract. And I was like, no, you can't do that. You know, this is, this is it's subjective. Like, you know, there's a little bit of me of like the, the, the crusty old man in the corner going like, Hey, let's not try and reinvent like rewarding on performance here. Like this is like, yeah. that's not a thing, but there were other bits of it that were truly fascinating. Like the idea of pseudo and like pseudo anonymous, like I had an avatar, I had a name, um, all the other people in my design team were, I didn't know their names. Uh, and it took me a while to even understand who they were. And, you know, like I'd, I'd they, people would show up, I'd give them a bit of work. If they were doing great at it, I'd give them more work. And then I checked in at some point into my like top performers. Uh, one was a 40 year old from Kazakhstan. The <laughs> other one was uh, you know, in his like early thirties in Australia. Um, there was, um, 
a, a woman from Australia who's um, like kind of fairly new to design, but was doing incredible work. And then my best performer was a 17 year old from Romania who <laughs> was doing this to basically fund him and his family's lifestyle. And, you know, like these are people I would never have hired you know, like, if I'd seen those CVs, if they were going through the interview process, like, you know, they wouldn't have got anywhere near it. Right. And there was something truly like meritocratic about that, that I really thought, oh, this is, this is interesting. Um, and it has its flip sides and there was messiness and a lot of toxic behavior from people, especially, you know, just like a lot of the things that you see in startups, but on steroids of just like sometimes companies are bad, are run by bad people who are bad at managing and shouldn't be doing it. Um, right. But it was a, yeah, it was an incredible experience to just witness that. Uh, and see what works, what doesn't work in that that world, um, and learn learn some new things. Wow, <laughs> I'm just thinking. You know, you, you mentioned that you know you had no idea. Like, what well, you're, you're pseudonymous, so your design team. You know, you, you you just you didn't really know their background or anything. You just knew the work that they did uh, until later on. You know, the, it's as results based as it gets. It's like no, as no non biased or as results based as it can get to the point where it's just like you're just evaluated on your work. Um, that's <laughs> that's so interesting. You know, I've I've never I've never heard I've never heard of a situation like that. But I can think about all the different in my head. I can think about all the different scenarios that can happen because of that. It, good good and bad. Uh, so really interesting. Yeah. And, you know, the good part, again, was that it kind of felt very meritocratic in many ways. You just show up, you do good work. The reality is like, you know, that doesn't work all the time. Like, and there'll be people who get into positions of power because you need like some level of like authority when you're trying to organize this stuff, no matter how meritocratic and like democratic you're trying to be. And then uh, people can start abusing that power because they're not used to it. And then they start like, uh, marginalizing some people or doing other things, you know, like it's fundamentally like they're just not good managers. They shouldn't be in those positions, but right. this is a crazy DAO and you know, that avatar is in charge and they're just swearing at people and not doing <laughs> the right things. And you're like, Oh, I'd be, you know, uh, it can, it can cr- create toxicity very, very, very quickly. Right. And that's a little bit ironic too, given given you know what the potential of a DAO is, where you where you really bring the power to the people, right? And and you try avoiding any abuse of powers, but that's just, that's just a reality, you know, when you when you're creating something new, and especially something so cutting edge like like DAOs and Web three, where you know coming from a product point of view, you know, I have an engineering background too, but you know, with the product perspective. I think one of the biggest issues I see with Web3 and a lot of technology is that there's a lot of potential in the technologies themselves, but bringing that as value to customers and people, that's where I think a lot of the issue lies. Um, and so I feel like what's happening right now, and, and this is just my, I guess, hot take, is that I feel like people are just trying to see how they can deliver value to people by just putting the technology in different scenarios. Um, and, so, and so for me, I, I'm really excited yet terrified to see how these technologies are, are actually going to, you know, evolve and become useful to customers and, and to, and to users. And so uh, as someone, I guess, from a product perspective, what are your thoughts on that in terms of like making productizing web three? Yeah, I think, you know, fundamentally what's really like the really sustainable stuff that is, you know, that survived the hype bubble and, 
um, is the stuff that's building the rail, like the deep tech and the rails and the infrastructure. Yeah. Um, you know, like it's the like who's building the AWS of crypto um, rather than who's building like the killer like customer facing feature yet. Because I think it's fundamentally it's not a technology that's truly fully ready for prime time yet. Right. Um, you know, it's ready for prime time when people don't even know that they're using crypto. Like, like, oh, I just need to like move money from here to here, and I don't care how it's done. But uh, this person can make it cheaper and easier for me, so I'm going to do that. And right. Um, and that's hard because it's you know that that takes time. You have false horizons. Uh, you know, if you think of like, yeah, I've I've lived through a few different cycles of this. Um, SaaS was one, you know, like cloud, like software in the cloud. People yeah. were like, that's never going to work. It's never going to be secure. You know, companies are never going to trust their data. It's never going to be performant enough. Internet speeds are not going to be fast enough. You know, there's like all of these things that was making it like, you know, it's just hard to scale, hard to deploy, hard to manage. And, you know, you figure all of those, like the, it takes a while, but the, you figure that out. And then it just turns into this thing that now we assume that's how, like imagine buying a piece of software and having to install it on your computer every time you needed to do, uh, you know, write a document or check your email or something. It's like kind of crazy, feels crazy now. Right. Um, mobile and others, like, well, who's going to buy stuff on their phone? You know, like, oh, we need to like, mobile is going to be fun for like games and a few other things, but no one's going to like, um, you know, do do important stuff on their phone. Yeah. And, you know, we were, we just sold our, uh, our apartment and I signed all the documents on my phone, like sitting, waiting for an Uber, you know, yeah. like there's, there's no impo bigger, important financial decision I've ever made in my entire life. And it's like, click, 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 you know, from my, from the phone now. And just, that's just like how the world works. Um, but that was not obvious at the time. And right. again, there are lots of false starts here. There are lots of technologies which people thought were going to be the future and that never materialized. Um, but I think there's something interesting to crypto, but right now, yeah, we're in the, like building the rails and the foundations sure. phase, the killer apps, we still don't know what they are or if they're going to materialize, but I feel like there's enough there that it's worth paying attention to and it's worth keeping an eye on. Right. Yeah. And I think. I think that's how it's going to start shifting in people's eyes because I think, to be honest, I think for a lot of people, they they think about all the negatives of crypto. A lot of them think it's a Ponzi scheme and, and they just think about the cryptocurrency itself. But I think what's really important, like you mentioned there, is that the moment we have the infrastructure, that's where product leaders and, and visionaries can really come in and utilize those infrastructure in order to deliver new unprecedented value that we couldn't have done before. Um, and so I'm really, really excited to see who those visionaries are and and what they decide to do but i think for anybody who is negative on crypto right now and web3 that's fair enough but just watch out just just wait wait give it a couple of years and, and we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah and as i said it might peter out but i think there's something there of that like especially in the world of ethereum of that like distributed computing the mm -hmm. idea that you can your code your contracts are out there in the wild and there's no AWS, there's no Amazon, there's no person who middle middle manager there who is deciding whether this works or not, or you have to pay them every time someone uses your product, that like distribution of that and 
I think is a very powerful thing that we don't, we're just scratching the surface of right now, but right. also, you know, as I said, like I'm not, <laughs> uh, I'm not an expert in, in this stuff. And I decided, oh, I'm going to go back to the worlds that I know better because <laughs> uh, this other world was like kind of too crazy for, for me right now, but who knows? Yeah, for sure. I think uh, every time I've tried going into the world of crypto, it's just, it's very daunting with how much stuff is going on. Um, so I know you mentioned that you know you you started from ground zero, where you had been like you heard about crypto, but you wanted to get more insight into it, uh, and then you know that eventually you ended up you know becoming head of design for this DAO. So I was just wondering, you know, what like for people like me who who are really interested in crypto, but it's sort of hard to figure out what how to learn more about it. How do you, what, what, what's something you recommend or what is a path you recommend for us based on your own experience? Yeah. So I, uh, I always try to avoid recommendations and just share what I, like my yeah. experience. Perfect. <laughs> um, because yeah, as I said, like my experience is like, I am not a good sit down and read everything kind of person. Right. Um, so what I was, uh, what I did was, okay, let's like, look, find some podcasts was one like place that I can go. I can listen to these. Uh, there's some really good podcasts, actually quite old podcasts from back in the like the last hype cycle that were actually really helpful in in, he- in setting that, um, giving me that foundation and that basic context. Then the yeah. other thing was like going on Twitter and just like, okay, who are the smart people in crypto? Follow a bunch of them, and that's why I started on, like hearing about projects, hearing about things that were interesting. And then it was like, yeah, go, I'm going to go join their DAO. I'm going to go, um, you know. I had like a little budget of like, okay, I'm going to go spend a little bit of money on this thing, see how that works. Uh, right. Trying not to like, you know, do anything silly there. Um, but just, yeah, just learn by doing, learn by feeling it, learn by losing a bunch of money on things. <laughs> and just like, oh, wow, that was scary. Right. Um, but then all making a little bit of money elsewhere and just seeing how that works and how it feels. And um, yeah, it's very hard. It was very hard for me to not, uh, not do that and and truly understand what's going on right yeah i think that's something i'm going to start doing too because i i think i'm in a very similar boat uh where you know i can go through the research papers for a bit but until i start you know coding or or to start doing something to really start getting the feel of things i i can't fully grasp what's going on uh so i think i gotta, I gotta start applying my own learning budget for crypto and and for these other technologies as well and uh, and start following more people on twitter i i, I think i have uh, I've been more recently, actually, I've been interested in AI and ML. So I've been following a lot of people who who have been, uh, you know, who are leaders for that. But I think I'm going to start also looking at crypto now. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean, that's a great way to get into any of these fields. And uh, AI, ML, another great, you know, starting to show it to be a revolutionary technology. Um, for sure. For sure. Yeah, well, perfect. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming on the podcast. Uh, we can start to wrap up here, but you know, before I let you go, I was just wondering. Uh, first off, you know, is there a book or or a piece of content that you recommend, or or in your experience has been you know uh, valuable for you that you think we should read? Uh, I'll give like a practical product one, and I'll give the um, uh, I think the more like interesting. Uh, you know, like non-producty thing that I'm reading. Um, mm-hmm. For product, and this is going to be no surprise to a lot of people, but I'm just going to say it in case anyone is listening and hasn't um, followed Lenny Rachitsky and his newsletter and his resources. Like he's basically 
you know, the oracle of product stuff. Now, when people ask me, like, how do I get into product or what do I do about this or that? He's written an incredible article that does it really well. So um, if you haven't seen him, like Lenny, uh, uh, Lenny Product Management, just type that into into Google and you'll, you'll find that stuff. It, it's worth subscribing. It's like there's no better fount of knowledge and content and than than that. Um, when it comes to just like non-product stuff, um, a book I'm reading right now that I'm finding really fascinating is called Empires of Light. And it's, it's a story of Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, and the beginning of the electricity and the light bulb. Mm-hmm. And what's fascinating about this is, you know, this is all happening in the 1800s, but it's basically a story about product market fit, go-to-market strategies, um, you know, a new technology trying to sell it to a public or all the things we talked about crypto of like, what's the killer app? Uh, how are people scared of it? Uh, this is kind of nuts to think about electricity as having all of those challenges where people were like, why do we need it? What is it for? Like it kills people. Um, right. <laughs> it's expensive. It's like, why would you do that versus these other things and, and learning like how they approached it and had startups and patent wars and like kind of literally it's like all of these things you realize like, this is not a new phenomenon in many ways, right. um, but you're just, we're just like levels ahead of it. And just, I, I really recommend that uh, really fascinating story and fascinating people. And just like incredible to think about, you know, tech, the tech scene of the 1800s. Right. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. I think, well, first off, yeah, Lenny's great. I, I definitely follow him and then I, you know, I got double down on that recommendation. He has amazing content if you're getting to product management. So uh, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that's really fascinating, actually. I didn't know there was a book on that. But um, yeah, I think, you know, technologies change, people change, or technologies change, empires change, economic principles change. But the one thing that stays constant is humans and, and the way they approach different items. Uh, so whether it be electricity in the 1800s, whether it be crypto now, whether it be whatever new technology is going to come out in 50 years, I, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Uh, so definitely very interesting. I might go check it out. I'm just going to caution. I don't want anyone to walk away from this thinking like, I think crypto is going to be as foundational as electricity. <laughs> um, but it's incredible to see these cycles play out. Like, it's, look at the, like, I encourage you to read that book and think of the internet of the right. 90s and like what people were saying about it and and things it's it's it the parallels are are incredible perfect well tom what's what's next for you now you know after this podcast what can we look forward to uh well my main project coming up is my second child uh okay. dropping on uh 25th of december congratulations so that's gonna be you know really where my uh head is gonna be at for the uh next few months For sure. Well, congratulations once again. And um, thank you so much, Tom, for coming on the podcast. I really loved hosting you. And um, and yeah, thank you so much for everyone for tuning in. It's a true pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Mm